I uh, set my alarm, or so I thought, for uh, 6.30 because I wanted to get up early and have some time to look over this message again, only to discover at 5.30 when the alarm went off that I had set it an hour early, but not only that, I would forgot to turn the clock ahead an hour. So uh, I had all kinds of time this morning. <laughs> but I understand next April I'll be able to, to get an extra hour of sleep, so I'll be okay. I'd like to invite you this morning to uh, turn with me to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, written by our hero, David, at a very uh, trying and precarious time in his life. The uh, tradition, the Hebrew tradition of this psalm places Psalm 11 with uh, 1 Samuel 19, in which David finds himself in his home with his wife, Michal, uh, surrounded by Saul's henchmen. Uh, They had uh, gathered around. They were lying in wait for him, anxious to uh, follow the king's orders and to do him in. It's a very dangerous time uh, for David, a very insecure time. And uh, he finds himself in this psalm responding to the counsel that he had received. And we're not sure if the counsel had come uh, primarily from McCall, his wife, or perhaps he had some of his trusted uh, comrades there with him as well. But uh, in response to, uh, to the counsel that they gave him, he writes, beginning in verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, Flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows, They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? Now, as I said, the wicked had uh, taken aim. They uh, were lying in wait for David. And uh, the counsel that he receives is to flee, is to uh, turn tail and run, is to hightail it out of town. This was... uh, a very reasonable advice considering the circumstances that he found himself in. I'm sure that uh, had I been there, uh, I would have been inclined to have turned and run as well. Uh, It was very reasonable advice for his counselors to give. Uh, Incidentally, the the Hebrew is somewhat ambiguous on where the quote ends. For myself, I think the uh, counsel that he receives is simply to flee like a bird to your mountain The last line in verse 1 and then verses 2 through 3 include David's reflection on his circumstances. The the wicked had had bent their bow. The arrows were set against the string. They were hiding in the darkness behind bushes, perhaps uh, around buildings or in alleyways surrounding his house. Uh, They were hard to recognize. This was a very dangerous time for David. He was very vulnerable. Now, most of us have never experienced uh, this sort of physical assault before, and yet uh, the injustices that we face in life, the suffering, the pain, is no less uh, intense at times, no less dangerous. Interestingly, the the words that David uses here in, in Psalm 11 are actually used as figures of speech for insults and uh, uh, for assaults 
uh, verbal assaults, ridicule and mockings in uh, Psalms uh, 57 and 64, also written by David. And uh, many of us are familiar with those sorts of, uh, of attacks. Um, they're particularly hard for us to, uh, to endure when they seem undeserved. And that's exactly the situation that David finds himself in here. He was innocent. The only thing David was guilty of was being a faithful soldier to his king, being faithful to serve his Lord and to walk with him. David was guilty of nothing, and yet Saul's attacks on him uh, were, uh, were no less intense. Uh, you know, we're not surprised when our behavior bears consequences that such behavior deserves. I'm, I'm never surprised if I'm hightailing it down the, uh, the highway and I'm pulled over by a state trooper who uh, wants to give me his autograph uh, if I've uh, been exceeding the speed limit. But I am surprised when I'm pulled over or when I, when I have to bear ill treatment or injustices uh, that are undeserved. Those are the kinds that we struggle with. We want life to be fair. And yet so often we, we discover that life isn't fair. It wasn't for David in this situation. And uh, unfortunately, it's, it's not often enough fair for us. David in the psalm asks two questions that we commonly ask. The first one is found in verse 3. He says, when the foundations, that is, when the, the foundations of his life, those things that he can really count on, when those things are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the godly do? What can Christians do when all hell is breaking loose in our lives, as they say? When we're treated unjustly by our, our employers, when our teenagers rebel and want nothing to do with us or with God, when our husband or wife comes to us and says, I don't want to try anymore. I'm ready to give up. Or when the doctor says, it doesn't look good. What can we do? What can we do when we feel utterly helpless to do anything? David answers that question in verse 1. He says, in the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I lean. I depend. I hold on to God for dear life. I look to him as my shelter and as my protector. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, Jerry and the kids and I went out for dinner. And uh, as is our custom, uh, when you're ready, you go get in the car and then you wait for those who aren't quite ready yet. And on this particular evening, uh, one of my daughters was the last one to come out. And uh, I had locked the door, but I'd left it open. It was her responsibility to pull it shut as, uh, as she left. And apparently she misunderstood the instructions or forgot them. I'm not sure which. Uh, but she left. We all got in the car and went out to dinner. And when we came home later that night, it was dark. I mean, it was very, very dark. Uh, and we had uh, not left any lights on out front. And when we came to the door, here the five of us looked at the door, and the screen door was closed, unlocked, but it was closed. And the, uh, uh, the strong door, the, the big wooden door, was left completely open. And my kids turned to me and they said, uh, Dad, 
why don't you go in first? <laughs> and I wanted to look around for someone else who was strong, who could be my shelter and my protector, but, but the job fell to me. And so I proceeded to, to enter the house, walking rather hardly, you know, stomping as I came in to alert any would-be burglars that the family's home. And uh, turned on as many lights as I could find. I checked the closets. I looked under the beds. And, and sure enough, uh, no one was there. And was able to come out and tell the family it was okay to come in. But it was appropriate in that case for them to turn to me as their shelter and as their protector because it's my role in, uh, in our family to, to be the strong one. It certainly was that night. Uh, last week in our growth group leaders uh, meeting, one of our growth group leaders shared how uh, he and his wife uh, had for a number of months had their daughters waking up in the middle of the night being frightened wanting to come into bed with them and to be comforted and to to be uh, reassured that everything was going to be okay. And after uh, several weeks of this, they uh, placed, decided that they would place a little mat next to their bed. And this mat would be available for any of their daughters who would wake up in the middle of the night to come and, and lie next to them, that they might experience the comfort, consolation, security of being with their parents. And you see, I think that's what David has in mind here when he says, In the Lord I take refuge. David drew near to the Lord. He allowed the Lord to, to wrap his strong, loving arms around him in this very frightening situation and to be his security and his safety and his comfort. Isn't that what we long for? Isn't that what you want when life isn't going well for you? When you're in pain, when you're suffering, don't you just long for the Lord to wrap His arms around you and tell you it's going to be okay. I love you. I'm here. I know what you're feeling. What can the righteous do? Well, the righteous can draw near to the Lord and take refuge in Him. But we can only do that, and David could only do that, as he recognized his helplessness. And therein lies the problem for most of us. Most of us, myself included, want to figure a way out of the trouble that we're in. We think that we can reason our, our way through the difficulty, that if we think hard enough and try hard enough, come up with a strategy, the pain will go away. And sometimes it does, but a lot of the times it doesn't. A lot of the times we just need to recognize our helplessness and that God's available should we turn to him. There's a second question, though, that David asks, and it's also found in verse 3. If you have a uh, New International Version or a New American Standard, you'll notice in your footnote that there's an alternate translation. Verse 3 can also be translated, when the foundations of our life are being destroyed, what is the righteous one that is God doing? You see, in the original language, the subject of this question is somewhat somewhat ambiguous. It can either be us, what can we do when we feel helpless, or it can be translated, what in the world is God doing? Where is God? Don't you ever find yourself asking that question in various forms? Uh, Why is God allowing this pain in my life? Why is he allowing me to suffer? Doesn't he care? 
Where are you, God, when I really need you? God, I've been faithful to you. It doesn't seem like you're being faithful to me. And then we remember that, that we've been told for so many years that God is omnipotent. And so we ask, God, if you're all-powerful, if you're in control of everything, why aren't you doing something about the pain that I'm experiencing? I was golfing a couple of weeks ago with an acquaintance, and uh, I'm not quite sure where Tom is coming from spiritually, uh, but uh, the uh, the golf was getting boring, <laughs> and we uh, turned to God and or turned to the subject of God, and started to have a very philosophical discussion for about an hour about whether God exists, and if so, where is God when we hurt? And the conclusion that that Tom had come to in his life is that God does exist and that he's all-powerful, but he just doesn't get involved. He just doesn't get involved in our lives. He allows evil to run its course, choosing never to intervene. It's, It's as if he's the master clockmaker who's created this. He's wound it up, and now he's set the universe here, and he's allowing it to run its course. You know, that is one option. It's a very popular option, actually. This is the explanation that some friends of mine adopted when when their only son, at the age of 12, drowned. God doesn't act. That's the only way that they could, uh, could hold on to the idea that God was good. Because... If a good God can act or chooses to act, then why didn't he act in their case? You know, the trouble with that view of God, though, is that it makes God very detached and very aloof, very impersonal and ultimately unknowable. If God doesn't act, if he never gets involved in our lives, that it makes much of what we do as Christians pointless. You ever thought about that? God doesn't act, then why do we pray? If He doesn't get involved, why should we ask for His protection, for His help, for His guidance? Are we just playing a, a game called God in order to console ourselves or to comfort ourselves? That was the conclusion that, that my friend Tom came to. The other option, which is equally disturbing, is that he does exist and is omnipotent, but he doesn't always get involved in the way that we'd like him to. Sometimes he chooses to intervene, and sometimes he doesn't. Philip Yancey, in his wonderful book, Disappointment with God, interviewed a number of people who were disappointed with God. And one such person was Richard, who described his disillusionment with God's seeming injustice. Yancey describes it like this. One night something happened. Richard attended a Sunday evening church service where he heard the unusual testimonies and praise. But one report in particular rankled him. Earlier that week, a plane carrying nine missionaries had crashed in the Alaskan outback. Killing all aboard, 
The pastor solemnly related the details and then introduced a member of the church who had survived an unrelated plane crash that same week. When the church member finished describing his narrow escape, the congregation responded, Praise the Lord! Lord, we thank You for bringing our brother to safety and for having Your guardian angels watch over him, the pastor prayed. And please be with the families of those who died in Alaska. That trigger, or that prayer triggered revulsion. Something like nausea in Richard. You can't have it both ways, he thought. If God gets credit for the survivor, he should also get blamed for the casualties. Yet churches never hear testimonies from the grievers. What would the spouse of the dead missionaries say? Would they talk about a loving Heavenly Father? You see, in a sense, Richard was right. We can't have it both ways. We can't credit God with the deliverance without also crediting Him with the casualties. But we don't like to do that, do we? It's much too unsettling. It doesn't fit with our view of God. We want to think of Him as the source of all goodness. But we also want to excuse Him from the responsibility of permitting evil to touch our lives. We don't like to think of God as, as someone who's picking or choosing who He'll save and who He'll permit to suffer. That makes Him seem unfair, capricious. And so David asks, when the foundations of my life are being destroyed, what in the world is the righteous one doing? What is God about? Now listen to how he answers that second question in verses 4 and following. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked... And those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men will see his face. See, David says God is in control. He's in his holy temple. He's sitting on his throne. And he's awake. He's alert. He's attentive. He, David draws a conclusion that he sees our suffering. And he watches us with great interest, with the tenderness of a father. He watches, but he's not aloof. He's not distant. He knows our fears and our anxieties and our confusions. But then why doesn't he intervene? Why does he sometimes observe the sons of men as the foundations of their lives are falling apart and do nothing? Well, the answer is sort of tucked away in verse 4. Look at verse 4 again, and particularly the last two lines. I, wanted, I want you to notice the connection or the juxtaposition of the phrase, he observes the sons of men. And you could add in parentheses there, he observes us as all hell breaks loose in our life. He observes us and His eyes examine us. The Lord examines the righteous, or as the New American Standard translates it, He tests us. 
In other words, God uses the setbacks and the obstacles and the pain and the suffering in our lives to draw out of us greater faith and dependence upon Him. To rot in our lives more Christ-like character. It's the same conclusion that Paul and James come to in the New Testament. Paul writes, our sufferings produce perseverance. And perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. James says the testing of, of your faith produces perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. I remember years ago uh, attending a conference that uh, Corey Ten Boom spoke at. Uh, Corey, as many of you know, was uh, a young woman during the uh, Second World War who lived in Germany, and she and her sister and, and parents uh, harbored um, Jews that were fleeing from the, the persecution of the Nazis. They hid them in their homes and uh, kept several of them safe for a time until the Nazis finally discovered them and put to death her mother and father and put Corey and her sister in a concentration camp camp in which her sister finally died. Corey survived. She was a lone survivor. And at this conference, she was sharing how the Lord had proven Himself faithful for her. How she had learned to love and to depend and to trust in God as a result of what she went through. And I remember sitting there being profoundly affected by her testimony, thinking to myself, Lord, I want to have that kind of faith. I want to know you in that sort of way. I want to be able to depend on you and trust you as she has done. And then as if the Lord had something to say to me, though not audibly, I, I felt the Spirit tap me on the shoulder and say, Ron, are you willing to attend the same school of faith that she's attended? You see, those whom God uses, He greatly tests. That's the story of the, of the Scriptures. We look at Abraham and Sarah, how God called them to be used in a mighty way, and yet they had to endure 25 years of barrenness. We look at Moses, who was called upon by God to lead his people out of Egyptian bondage. The one who had been trained in the school of the Pharaoh the natural selection, and yet before God called him into service, he had to spend 40 years in the desert going through a different school. Or Jeremiah, called upon to take the message of judgment to God's people, a call to repentance, and yet on the day the Lord called him into service, he told Jeremiah, you'll preach, and he did for 50 years. You'll preach without seeing one convert. And for 50 years, he chose to be faithful to God's call, all the time seeing God produce in Jeremiah a faith unlike the faith that he had before he was called. Or Peter in his infamous denial. Or Paul having been selected by God to be a, a messenger 
to the Gentiles, and yet the church being unwilling to take him in for fear. And so Paul having to spend years in the wilderness going through a school in which God would prepare him. Or perhaps the best case of all, Job, who lost it all simply so that he could learn that God was sovereign, that God was good. In spite of the pain that he endured, God was good and could be enough for Job. You see, God's committed to teaching us the same lessons that he's taught his saints of old. He's committed to the same growth in our life. And that's why oftentimes when we pray, Lord, where are you at? Why are you allowing this to happen? His response, at least for, the, for a time, is to, is to remain silent. To teach us to draw, to, draw near to him. For me, the most, uh, the most difficult time in my life was my father's death some five years ago next month. I cried out, God, why? Why is we're just about to finally, after so many years, develop a relationship with one another? Why did you take him? It seems so unfair. And yet I can stand here today and say that it was through that experience that God taught me more of himself than I, I had ever known before. That I, I saw God in a way that was unfamiliar to me before that. I learned, learned something of his grace and his love and his fatherhood for me that I really didn't understand before that. What, what difficulty, what pain has God used in your life to teach you to trust him? Some of you can probably point to difficult marriages others to uh, problems with your children, periods of unemployment perhaps, or depression, or perhaps like me, death. And you can see God's hand, his hand in drawing you to himself through that pain, pain that at times seemed unbearable and yet resulted in a deeper walk with God. I received a letter yesterday from a friend of mine. I went to college, we went to college together, roomed together for a couple of years, and we've been sort of out of touch. But Myron wrote and, and uh, uh, ex- explained that uh, he and his wife had just uh, a few months ago given birth to their fifth child, uh, who was discovered shortly after birth to have Down syndrome. They have five children now under the age of eight, the youngest having these special needs. And then to top it off, they just discovered that his wife was pregnant with their sixth. And as I read that, I thought to myself, what in the world is God wanting to do in their life? What's he going to teach them? And interestingly, as I read through the letter, I was uh, lifted up as I heard Myron explain his uh, perspective on where they're at and his confidence that 
though this is an extremely difficult time for them and there are so many uncertainties, he and his wife are convinced that God knows what he's doing. God is going to do something good for them, for their family, and through the life of, of this little girl, this little baby named Mary. Some of you are currently facing uh, tremendous pain, heartache, and disappointment. And like David and, and like uh, the rest of us, you probably at times ask yourself, Lord, how much longer? When is this going to stop hurting? Lord, where's the payoff? And when is the payoff? And when you find yourself suffering pain and disappointment and injustices at the hands of others, the question that, that we ask is, Lord, when are they going to get theirs? When will everything be set right? And David answers both of those, uh, those questions in verses 5 and 6. He says that the righteous will be rewarded, but also the wicked in verses 5 and 6. Their judgment will come. A day will come when God will set everything right. Interestingly for us, it, it never seems to be soon enough, does it? We read verses 5 and 6 and we say, yes. <laughs> but why not yet, Lord? Peter gives us the answer in 2 Peter 3 when he says, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but he's patient, waiting for all men to come to repentance. You see, God would prefer to save rather than to judge. And so those who were the perpetrators of the injustices that we experience today are on God's short list of those that he'd like to save. Which, by the way, is how many of us found ourselves in the family of God as well. But David also says that a day will come when God will set everything right for the righteous. In verse 7 he says, Upright men will see his face. And that's a promise that we can take to the bank today. We don't have to wait until we're united with him in heaven. Jesus said, Blessed are those who are pure in heart, for they shall see God. It's God's desire that even through our suffering, even through our pain, that we might see more of Him, that we might see more of His power and His resources, His strength, and His character, and His presence. And so if you find yourself today asking, God, where are you? His answer to you is, I'm right here. I see what you're experiencing. I feel it with you. And I'm using it to draw you to myself. We ought not to be dismayed or surprised by our hardships because it's one of God's best tools. And He's a master craftsman. It's one of His best tools in shaping our character, making us more like Himself. What should we do? We should take refuge in God, as David did. We need to pick up our little mat 
wherever it's at and carry it right over next to God and lie it down next to Him and allow Him to to comfort us, to snuggle up next to Him and allow Him to, to be our refuge, to be our protector. Annie Johnson Flint in her wonderful hymn, He Giveth More Grace, wrote these words. When we've exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving is only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of His infinite riches in Jesus, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let's pray. Father, we must confess that we're so short-sighted with regard to our own pain. We want out of it and we want out of it now. And we're confused when we can't understand what You're doing. Lord, deliver us from from that inclination. Father, help us to, to in the words of, of James, to consider it all joy when we experience pain, disappointment, heartache, because we know that You're about something good for us. Father, give us the faith that we need to believe that, to count on You and to to hang on to You, to take refuge in You. And I pray that You will, as You've done before for us, that You would prove Yourself to be strong. All that we need. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.